last episode of 2022 and what a year it's been. Of course it's 50 years since Lake Pedder was controversially flooded but it hasn't been a year of mourning because the loss is temporary and by sharing the story and significance of the original Lake Pedder like these wonderful people do here on this podcast its legacy lives on. Dams don't last forever and the phenomenon of removing large impoundments to restore natural river flows and biodiversity has taken off around the world. It's only a matter of time before Tasmania catches up. Hey, and December the 14th was the 40th anniversary of the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area, or the Twa. It came amid the Franklin River campaign, which was successful in part due to the lessons learned from the loss of Pedder. And included in the Twa boundary was the unnatural Pedder impoundment with the intent that one day, soon, the original will be restored. I'm Tabitha Badger, and today's guest is mountaineer, photographer, and author of four books, David Nielsen. After being a member of the first party to climb the Blade on Federation Peak, on his way home from the Southwest, David first visited Lake Pedder. He conceived the idea to publish a book with images of Lake Pedder to assist the campaign to save the lake. Southwest Tasmania, a land of the wild, highlighted the threatened wilderness of Western Tasmania. But by the time it went to print, Pedder had already been inundated. But one of David's images is playing a role in saving Lake Pedder still, and you've likely seen it. It's taken from the Franklin Ranges, overlooking Pedder with the iconic tannin-stained mega ripples lapping the pink quartzite beach. It's been made into a poster and most recently a puzzle. This recognisable wonder is playing a role in inspiring a new cohort to call for the restoration of Lake Pedder. So, here's episode 14 of Pedder Unplugged with David Nielsen. I fell in love with wild places probably because I spent time in my early childhood with my uh, visiting various several farms that my uncles owned in Western Victoria and just wandering around those properties being allowed to go out and explore the creeks and uh, mountains in, in the adjoining properties and one of those properties was uh, very close to the Grampians in Western Victoria and I could see these amazing cliffs up past the edge of the farm and knew that one day I'd want to go rock climbing on those peaks. So that, that was really the beginning of my love of wild places. Then I went to university, Monash University, and joined the bushwalking club, as it was called. But I knew that they also did uh, rock climbing and canoeing. Uh, and I started doing walking and then very quickly started doing rock climbing. And it was one of my rock climbing trips, really, that led me to Lake Pedder. So a group of us were keen to go and climb on Federation Peak in southwest Tasmania. And there was an unclimbed ridge on Federation Peak, Blade Ridge, that we were keen to attempt. 
So in February 1968, four of us went into Federation Peak. Um, we had some bad weather and then the weather turned in our favour and we spent two days climbing the blade and climbing the northwest face on Federation, which had been climbed before. So we were the first people to climb the entire northwest side of Federation, I guess you'd say. After that trip finished, we walked out via Lake Petter. And we'd heard a lot about Lake Petter by then. The, the campaign to try and stop the flooding had, had already started because um, we'd found out that the <coughs> Hydroelectric Commission was keen to flood the lake, so we were keen to walk out to Petter. What I thought I might do is read an excerpt from my diary, which was in my first book, and I guess yeah. it sets the scene for my first visit to Lake Petter. It was late in the morning when we left Junction Creek and headed along the old Port Davy track towards Lake Petter. We had left the Eastern Arthurs after several weeks of climbing and were enjoying the peace of the valleys. We were not in a hurry and it was dark when we first glimpsed the lake, a thin strip of water set beneath a jagged range of peaks with an evening sky above. By the time we reached the beach, darkness had fallen. As we walked along the broad flat sands, the moon cast its light over the scene, creating its unique interplay of white and black. It was a peaceful scene, a striking contrast to the wind and rain we had known in the Eastern Arthurs a few days before. During the night, the mist came down and with the rising of the early morning sun, the lake and surroundings were clothed in a diffuse cloud that lent a soft color to everything. Gradually the mist lifted and the still waters reflected the surrounding peaks. The colours became stronger, the rich dark red of the water, the white of the quartzite sands and the greens of the trees and vegetation. On this first visit our stay was brief. We left with an impression of peace and beauty which was both unique to the southwest and at the same time an integral part of it. That was really beautiful. Um, I've got your new book, um, Chasing How the long Mountain was Light, it? in front of me. Yeah. Between that that first trip to Pedder until your next. Well, I guess I, the campaign was already underway to try and save the lake. Mm-hmm. I had a limited involvement with with that campaign. I did a few things, but I wasn't centrally involved in any decision making or uh, anything of that ilk. A couple of things that have come to mind, which I did participate in, there was a Tasmanian government had a tourist bureau in Collins Street, Melbourne, and so we had a demonstration outside the tourist bureau and we're all there with our placards, Save Lake Petter, which was a rather strange sort of place to have a demonstration, but it seemed a a logical place because of the, um, it was the Tasmanian Tourist Bureau. One of the other things I did was that the campaign had a caravan that was uh, like a mobile information centre and that was based in Hobart, but that caravan toured around the eastern states, went to Adelaide, went to Sydney, and it went to Canberra. And somehow or other, I ended up with the job of driving the caravan or, or towing the caravan from Canberra to Melbourne. And, and I hadn't not done any towing of caravans and then, so it was quite a challenge. But anyway, I, I brought the caravan down from Canberra to Melbourne. And that played quite a significant role, I think, in getting the message around to to the mainland. It had been 
initially obviously a campaign just based in Tasmania, but spreading the word uh, more widely was really valuable for the campaign. So, and of course, you were living in uh, Victoria at the time oh, of the campaign. Yes, I was living in, yeah. in, in 1971, uh, I decided that I wanted to try and that it might be helpful for the campaign to try and get a book published on southwest Tasmania and, and which would of course include Lake Petter and I decided that in in uh, early 1972 I would spend time doing trips into the southwest and to Lake Petter so it was really four years after I did the um, the rock climbing Federation peak that I went back to to the southwest, did a number of trips to different locations, taking photographs and, and including two trips to Lake Better in uh, February and March 1972, and they were about 10 days each. What way did you go in to get to Lake Better? Mm. <laughs> Testing memory. Um, when I, in 1965, when, when other friends went bushwalking in southwest Tasmania, you had to walk all the way from Medina into the southwest. Then they built the Strathcordon Road, and that allowed you to walk to Lake Pedder in about, I'm guessing, yeah, about three or four hours, maybe four hours. Yeah. So you could walk in from the road. And of course that road did destroy the wildness very, very much so of the southwest. But I suspect, I, I just can't remember how I came in, but I think I walked in. I never flew into Lake Pitta. Um I, I will have walked in with a week's food or 10 days food uh, from getting a ride along that, that Strathcordon Road. And of course, you would have had all of your photography equipment with you as well to document yes. the region. And that was, uh, you know, that always adds to a heavy pack when you've got to... <laughs> Yeah, I did have a reasonably heavy pack, but back then I was a bit stronger than I am today and I seemed to survive somehow or other. I found I could just carry, uh, I'm not a strong bushwalker, but I could just carry eight or ten days food if I had to and uh, minimal camera equipment. So that's what I would have, that's what I did take into Lake Petter. And so I spent those, on both those trips, I spent about, I think it was a bit over a week. Yeah, on each time taking photographs of Peter. What were the highlights or the kind of standout moments in those two weeks? Be it an individual moment when the the weather magically produced a, a sublime or serenic moment, or was there a particular location around Peter that really stood out for you? Getting to know the lake and its different moods was significant. Certainly. Uh, I went up onto the Franklins a number of times because you got this magical view down onto the lake or, or the best high view you could get really uh, outside an aeroplane or a helicopter. And so I would go up there whenever I thought the weather was going to be good for taking photographs. I climbed up onto Mount Solitary, which is the peak uh, now looks like an island in the impoundment, but it's to the east of the lake and that gave a different view one of the things I was thinking about uh, this morning was, well, the lake it was very beautiful. It was three or four kilometres square and set in this broad valley. And the backdrop of particularly of the Franklins behind gave it this mountain lake flavour. Um, but you also had this other aspect to the lake 
that you couldn't see from the ground, but you had this beautiful serpentine river flowing out of the lake, which is the river that's called the Serpentine. Um, and if you see some of the photographs, I think in the, the Jeff Parr photography presentation, um, you can see those beautiful serpentine bends in, in, the, in the river as it leaves the lake. So it's really another aspect, I think, to the, to the beauty of the lake was that it, it flowed out into this wonderful river that in turn flowed into the Gordon. Yeah, it's magnificent to see the lands department aerial photographs over the serpentine just as Pedder had started to flood from the serpentine dam end. I hadn't realised how uh, embanked the river's edge was and then you can sort of see the impoundment waters rising around it and the really definitive banks of the serpentine still existing there. It's an amazing photograph. Yes, I, I was actually, some of those photos are, are in um, Les Southall's Mountains of Paradise in the back of that uh, and it is, they're, they're very striking uh, images. It gives you a whole new, new view of the, if you haven't been in a, if one hadn't been in a plane, which I never had been. It's quite an amazing little river that flowed out of a beautiful lake. So what happened with your book? I spent uh, three or four months of doing these trips uh, in the summer of 1972. Then I went, came back to Melbourne and spent time putting the book together. I had no idea whether i find a publisher or not, but I, I put a, a sort of a dummy a book together and then approached various publishers in Melbourne. The first one said it, it looked very nice, but he, he was sure that I would never find a publisher. And then I went to the second publisher and that was an Adelaide-based publisher, quite a significant Australian publisher at the time, Rigby Limited. And they liked the book and took it back to Adelaide and decided after a couple of months that they would indeed publish it. So that was great news. Uh, in the beginning, they were hoping to publish it in 1974, but uh, that got pushed back to the middle of 1975. And I guess I knew all along that the lake was going to be flooded by the end of 1972. Um, but I guess I was hoping that, that my book might be able to play some sort of role in, in having that decision uh, turned around and, and the lake not being flooded, but of course that didn't happen. And so it was disappointing that the book didn't play a role in, in saving the lake. I, I was very pleased to have a book published. That was a more personal aspect of the, the project. Yeah, it's quite a, a huge achievement to have that done. Uh, so when the book was published, you were in New York, is that right? That's correct, yes. I, I'd, I'd done my first trip. Uh, I decided after spending that time photographing southwest Tasmania that I'd um, go to Patagonia in southern South America, which is in Chile and Argentina, and, and do some trips there and some climbing and perhaps try and get a book published on Patagonia. Um, and so I'd done my first trip to Patagonia and, and then gone north through uh, South America and into uh, the United States. And I was in New York when my father had posted me copies of the book. So I went to the New York uh, main GPO, General Post Office, opened this parcel in, in this cavernous hall of a post office in New York. And it seemed a long, long way away from Southwest Tasmania. But, but I was very pleased to see copies of the book. Obviously, one is always 
Auckland's first published book is something pretty special, so I was very pleased about that. But there was also a sadness involved because by then the lake was well and truly flooded and there was certainly no way that, that, that um, it was going to be uh, unflooded in the short term. It was going to stay that way for a long time, clearly. So that was disappointing. Oh, very disappointing. Sorry, I should stress it that way. Yeah. It, it, it was a great loss to uh, so many people who who been fortunate to, to go to Petter and, and to appreciate its um, beautiful natural values, to, to lose that lake for a very small amount of energy. Uh, I worked out uh, not so long ago that it seemed a reasonable sized wind farm will generate as much energy as Lake Petter does. So, it seems uh, just a shocking thing that they, we've foregone such a beautiful lake for such a small gain in our electricity. Yeah, the decision making behind the flooding of Petter and the ongoing impounding of Petter is just unfathomable at the moment. Uh, they, well, they've known since they built the Edgar and Scotts Peak Dam that they were constructed on or adjacent to the Edgar fault line which I'm not an engineer, but you probably wouldn't build a dam on a fault line. And now they understand they have to spend millions of dollars to strengthen these dams so that in the event of seismic activity, they're not just going to crumble and fall over immediately. They will fail slowly. And you just cannot help but wonder when the world is in dire need of vast wilderness areas, why that money is not being invested into restoring PETA because, you, as you rightfully say, you can easily replace the energy that it can generate with a, a couple of wind turbines. It's a, it's a very small, you know, a bit of rooftop solar around the, around the island wouldn't hurt either. Yeah. Um, there's been, you know, numerous iterations of campaigns to restore PETA over the years, but since the day it was flooded, um, and of course, PETA 2000 is the, the notable campaign with the federal inquiry. It was called PETA 2000, but it took place in the early 90s. Did you have any role to play in that? Yes, I got involved in, in again, in the Melbourne side of PETA 2000. So we had quite an active group of people, the late and dearly missed Les Southall, uh, played quite a role in, in um, PETA 2000 in in Melbourne, the Melbourne part of that. And uh, I was involved for quite a few years. We, we had lots of meetings and organised a number of public meetings and we had some art performances. Um, we just tried to raise the issue of unflooding the lake in Victoria and Melbourne. At that time, I decided to or in fact, Bob Brown encouraged me to publish a poster with one of my photos of Petter, so I did the large poster of Lake Petter in about 1994. So that was all part of the Petter 2000, and um, we were hoping that by the year 2000, Petter would be unflooded, but of course we, we weren't successful with that, and uh, Restore Petter's really picked up that pattern and is doing a great job, I think, in trying to change the government's views. It's not your traditional uh, environmental or conservation campaign. We're so used to stopping destruction, not 
advocating for the restoration of something. Of course, in restoring something, there's no deadlines. Um, you really got your own goalposts in, in many regards. There's no bulldozers coming in on a set date or planning approvals that have to be in. So it's a, it's a whole other ball game. But there is a fantastic image of you and a young Kevin Kiernan with a few other campaigners on the beach of Lake Pedder in, I think it's March 1972. Right. Yeah. And it was the Mercury article titled, They'll Climb Trees to Save the Lake if Necessary. So you obviously didn't do that. But <laughs> no, we didn't climb the trees. Um, yeah, it's a, it is a good photo. Uh, and as you say, uh, Kevin was there who went on to about four years later to be a co-founder of the Wilderness Society in Tasmania. And we were standing defiant and it was good to get the publicity. I mean, any publicity, as you know, we, we appreciate. And the other person, that, there's two other people that I knew in that photograph, John Brownlee and Sue Brownlee. John Brownlee was also a photographer and we took photos together from the Franklin Range of the lake and John's photograph ended up being, there's a small book called, small paperback A4 shaped book, Save Lake Petter, I think it's called. And John's photo is on the front cover of that book. And I took my photo that was, uh, it's been used on the poster and the jigsaw and extensively in other places uh, at the same time. So we both took the same view of the lake. So your new book, concludes with a, some diary excerpts from the South Coast track, a magnificent wild place and you, you have to go there to understand exactly how special and welcoming it is for a wild place. And you call it the most treasured wild place you've ever been to, which is a huge statement and testament to the South Coast track region, given the places that you've traveled around the world that are truly wild. What are your thoughts? Many people compare the South Coast track and um, regions like Cox Bight to having a similar, a similar sense of place to the beach at Lake Pedder. Do you feel that that's an accurate statement just in your, your experience? Yes. I stand by, well, obviously I stand by my uh, comment that I make in the book that, that I, the South Coast it, is the most beautiful wild place that I've been to. And no, everyone has their own favourite wild places, I guess. But for me, the combination of the coast and the mountains and the remoteness and, and the wildness and the beauty of that coastline just all adds up to a, a very, very special place for me. And some of that might be related to like that, that it was a coast that I came across early in my travels to wild places, but it still remains uh, very, very special. And I think it, it, there is a link between the wildness of that coast and the wildness and the beauty of Lake Pedder. I think it's a combination. There's some, something, some strange chemistry goes on with the, when the, the water and mountains are together and that's what you get in both those places so you've got a beautiful particularly the franklin range uh, it sets off like better uh, in a beautiful way and at the same time on the south coast you've got the ironbound range and the various other ranges adjacent to this coast with uh, 
beautiful beaches in between the mountain ranges. So I think both, uh, it's something about mountains and the water and that you got at Lake Pitta and you do get at the south coast at the same time. Uh, other question I was going to ask you is what did you think made Lake Pitta such a special place? But <laughs> you very much just, just answered that, I think. <laughs> I hope so. I think uh, like my strongest memory of Pitta is from that first visit and that's often the case I think with the first time you come to to a place can remain your your strongest and most powerful memory and and so coming to Lake Petter after we'd been in the Eastern Arthurs we'd had a week of very bad weather we'd come down into the valley and the weather fined up and then we we get to Lake Petter and, and encounter this this very very beautiful lake I think that remains my my most powerful and strongest memory of Lake Petter. Do you have any lessons that you've learnt from all of the magnificent places that, that you've been to that we as, you know, not just here in Tasmania, but anywhere that, you know, younger people should be doing to better protect or share the importance of natural wild places? I think one of the points that I make in the, in the new book is that Unfortunately, um, we can never take for granted the protection of wild places. We just never know what governments or decision makers are going to do that uh, we might strongly disagree with, which I certainly do with the proposal to put private commercial huts on the south coast. And so we just have to keep reminding the broader community and reminding the decision makers of how valuable wild places are to, to the human spirit. What an extraordinary life of adventures. Huge thanks to David for sharing his time and his story and for all of his ongoing work to conserve our world's wild places. We'll pop a link to his newest book, Chasing the Mountain Light, into the episode notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can help us out by sharing it with friends and rating it on whatever platform you listen in from. Thank you for tuning in for another year. This is our last episode for 2022, the 50th year since Petter's temporary flooding. Have the best Christmas and start to 2023. We are another year closer to Lake Petter's inevitable restoration. Mm-hmm.